I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Psalm. Book of Psalms, chapter 23, if you'll turn there with me. Psalm chapter 23, I'm sure, is very familiar to most, if not all, of you. It'll be hard for me a little bit reading it out of the New King James. I memorized it back in the day in the old, but we're going to be very deliberate this morning in our reading. Psalm chapter 23 as a corollary passage to our study in Acts. God's word declares, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I've noticed that the, um, I have a little irritation in my throat. I think it's from all the uh, haze we've had the last few days. This week from the fires way out in California and Washington. They're saying that's what's causing the haze here. <clears throat> and so I um, have a little bit of a, effect, I think, on my voice, and we're going to, if I crackle a few times, you'll know why. This morning, we want to make the application of last Sunday's message. Last Sunday, we talked about the simple statement given by God to Paul to be of good cheer. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome that that statement was was prefaced with the Lord standing by him. That out of the presence and promises of God, we all work and move, or ought to. We want to see it applied today in the circumstance of Paul Really not just in the events to come that night and the days to follow, but really the weeks and months and years to come in Paul's ministry where the presence of the Lord persisted as well as the promises of God. And Paul isn't unique, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to read out of the Psalms and to see that this is true for all believers, that what God has promised to Paul Um, holds true for all who would follow after him and serve him, as we will see this morning. Let's, before we uh, get into our study, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for this time we can spend in your word, and we pray your spirit to be directing in it. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, be magnified in what is said, what is received, and in the spirit of both. That it might be guarded from error from opinion and it might be guarded also from our willfulness to think that we know your truth and can define it outside of your word Lord we pray that we might be attentive today you might remove distractions from our minds as well as from our presence that we might focus our attention singularly upon your truth your Son, Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we left off with that one verse, verse 11, and uh, we certainly implicated what was to come, and it is an account that most of us are familiar with, and that is the uh, account of the 40 starving Jewish men. Um, didn't live long, apparently, because they made a pact that they would not eat or drink 
until they had killed Paul, and that wasn't going to be something that they could persist in very long, very much longer. But let's pick up in verse 12. When it was day, the account we saw last week was during the night. When it was day, some of the Jews banded together, bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. We're going to stop right there for a few minutes. And so here's the great conspiracy, and it's much larger than just 40 men. Uh, 40 men in the morning realize that Paul is under the protection of the Romans. Uh, this is not satisfactory to them. Whether they have been uh, goaded into this a little bit by some of the religious leaders, we don't know. But they certainly have an audience with the council that Paul had just met with. And we find them... Uh, making this oath that Luke goes on to say, in their own words, it was a great oath. Um, That is that they fully committed themselves to this, that this was something that they committed each other to before the Lord. Uh, And, of course, the Bible has some very strict guidelines for taking this kind of an oath, um, that uh, to break this would have been uh, a grave sin, uh, and God would not have looked kindly upon it. You might say, well, that's kind of weird. God doesn't look kindly on people um, breaking an oath to kill one of his servants. Uh, Well, in the course of the Old Testament, that is the requirement, that you keep this oath. And so they have communicated it, and they are already prepared for this oath to last, well, 24 hours is all they think it's going to take, right? So they're just doing a 24-hour fast. And so they have brought into their conspiracy not only those four, I'm sorry, those 40, but also now the chief priests and the councils, the elders. They have asked them to be complicit in this. We have this intention, and we want you to aid us by calling upon the commander to send Paul to you so that you can uh, examine him uh, more thoroughly or whatever excuse you want to give, and then we will certainly uh, be able to Once he's isolated away from the citadel, we can do the damage we want to do. We can murder Paul and uh, before he ever gets to you. And there'll be nothing, no blood on your hands because no one will be able to connect those dots. The saddest part maybe of this isn't the 40 men, but the chief priests and the council agreeing to this. That they're going to take their part in doing what is necessary. And we find that in the 25, 30 years or so since the, the death of Christ and the, and the crucifixion there and all of their illegal activity, that nothing really has changed. That they're still willing to corrupt themselves, to rid themselves of men who will point at sin and call it sin and call men to the Messiah, to righteousness, and to God's standard. And let there be no confusion. That's really what this is all about. This is all about them wanting to protect their center of power and their center of influence. This is not a self, This is not a righteous indignation that they really have. They didn't have that about Jesus. Over and over again, the issue with John the Baptist, the issue with Jesus, the issue with his followers is they get the crowds. And remember that as Paul traveled and he went to synagogue after synagogue, that it wasn't the first Saturday that people were upset with him, was it? First Saturday, it was okay. We engaged him, and they were asking a lot of questions. They are going to do a lot of study. The problem started after the second Saturday. Why? Because the synagogue was packed, and envy ensued. And now they start to contradict even themselves. And so we need to recognize that this isn't a a doctrinal issue that they're really deeply concerned about, but their own interests that they're wanting to protect. 
And Paul becomes an individual that they see as a threat to that again. And we are reminded uh, again by the words of James that myriads of Jews have been coming to Christ. They haven't been well instructed in abandoning the law, or not abandoning, but of raising above the law. Uh, in doing so, the church has, has lost its way in that respect in Jerusalem. But we find that they are still seeing him as a threat. And that the inciters of this, and perhaps certainly many of the 40 who had conspired themselves together, were not even from Jerusalem. They were the Jews that were out there that had contact with Paul out in the communities that he had established churches and spread the gospel. And so we look at this and we say, boy, you know, why sign up for this kind of a job? And you talked past, Pastor, you talked last week about the promises of God, that among them is a promise, you must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That there is trouble between here and eternity in the presence of God if you're going to really walk in righteousness, justice, and truth in the way of Christ. There's going to be trouble in this world. And that's a promise of God. If you hate me, they're going to hate you also. They want to kill me, they want to kill you. And you look at the promises of God in Matthew 24 that your own family are going to think they're doing society and, and God even a favor by turning you in uh, to be slaughtered, imprisoned. And we find that to be the case in Paul's experience. And in fact, in the experience of all who would truly follow after him. We may wring our hands, and frankly, we often do wring our hands at the concept that somehow my life might be threatened, my property might be threatened, uh, my job might be threatened, my familial relationships might be threatened by my faith in Jesus Christ. And I would contend with you, you don't wring your hands enough, I guess, um, because most of us don't think it's going to cost us anything because it hasn't so far, by and large, and we are reticent to really bring that into our description of the Christian life. That there are tribulations, because frankly, for most in the Western Christendom, um, that's not our experience. Maybe to some degree, but um, certainly none of us are cowering at the idea of, of uh, someone coming in here and threatening all of our lives because we're in this room, participating in this activity. And we're not cowering because of our boldness, we're cowering because not cowering because it's not reasonably probable. But the fact is that God does call us to this kind of expectation, and he's promised it. But the promises go well beyond them. And we want to see those promises fully carried out in the rest of this passage. Um, you think, well, here's a conspiracy. Here we have 40 men who are determined to do this act upon, of, of wickedness upon a servant of God. They have brought into their conspiracy the elders, the chief priests, the council um, to aid them. And somewhere in that room, somewhere in that very large meeting, all right, that, recognize that meeting is larger than the people here today. Okay, You got 40 of them, you got... 20-some of the others, and so you got 60, 70 people, uh, and there's a pair of ears in that room that no one thought much of. One pair of ears cared about what was going on and recognized its evil purpose. One, out of all those people, only one said this isn't right and needs to be guarded. But there only needs to be one for God to work his purposes. And I think that's something we need to recognize is that God consistently throughout the entirety of Scripture has not needed very many people to do his work. He really doesn't. Um, as I grew up, grew, uh, up studying to be a pastor, um, and yes, I did grow up spiritually during that time. I was an adult physically, but not spiritually really. Um, and developing into being uh, 
minister, a minister. Um, one of the things I heard uh, regularly, well, you have to just have a mindset to understand that in the church, and here's the thing, 10% of the people are going to do 90% of the work. And that was just a scourge of the ministry you just had to accept and deal with. <clears throat> and i got to say that uh, 10% is an awful lot. Ten percent is an awful high percentage when you think about the percentages in some of the scripture passages. When you think of Gideon's little army, ten percent's a lot <laughs> compared to what he had. When you think of Noah, ten percent's an awful lot compared to that one man. And you go through scripture and you find the prophets, you find uh, the, the princes the, uh, sometimes of, of Israel, you find that God doesn't need very many people. Um, he didn't need 10% of the sons of Judah to serve him. He needed one out of 12, a guy named Joseph, to deliver the nation. He doesn't need that many people to deliver his own. And in this case, out of 60 plus people, he only needed one. That's not 10%, is it? He only needed one. And that one was Paul's nephew. Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush. He went and entered the barracks um, and told Paul... Uh, again, Paul isn't really a prisoner. He's under protective custody. Uh, he has allowed visitors and guests. Um, he's not chained because he's a Roman citizen. He pretty much has freedom to walk around the citadel wherever he wants. He's not really under guard hardly. Um, and so there are guards around, but they're there to protect him, not to keep him. He's, he's apparently even possibly free that if he wanted to, maybe he'd even walk out. Um, because he was an untried Roman citizen. And so here comes his nephew in and relays the message. This is what's being planned. Paul uh, simply says uh, to one of the centurions, and that's uh, interesting, in verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander if he has something to tell him. Now I want you to think about the circumstances right now. Uh, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but to me, it's pretty phenomenal, the confidence that Paul has. Um, he doesn't call to one of the lesser guards. There's lots of them in the citadel. There are probably a few around him. He sends for a centurion. This would be like sending an officer. You're going, uh, um, get that officer over here. And now he's not going to say, could you please do this as a favor to me? No, look at his tone. Um, take this young man to the commander if he has something to tell him. That's not a request, people. <laughs> Paul has such a confidence in what's going on, recognizing he's now a Roman citizen in the Roman citadel, uh, surrounded by some Romans who are citizens and some Roman soldiers that were not. They couldn't afford it. And he's a born citizen. He has all the special privileges. And yes, he can even at this point uh, order centurions around. He's an uncondemned Roman. Citizen by birth. And yes, he can do this. And so the centurion does what he's called to do. After all, they're all a little, little unnerved anyway because they have already broken Roman law with regard to Paul. So they should be on their best behavior from here on out. And that's going to show forth in the letter they send to Felix here in a little bit. Uh, so off goes, of course, the young man with the centurion, brings him to the commander. Uh, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Commander takes him by the hand, goes aside, says in private, what is it you have to tell me? And he dis discloses the conspiracy. 
And the commander is going to make an immediate response. And so in less than time than you can believe, we already have uh, the conspiracy unfolded that everyone in the Citadel has been made, or at least the commander has been made aware of it, and he's going to take immediate steps to prevent anything more happening to Paul under his watch. And very quickly, we find that um, the commander is going to see how committed these 40 are. He's not going to wait till the next day. He says, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And that's the plan. In verse 31, it says, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor read it, he asked what province he was from. When he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you. When your accusers have come and command him to be kept in Herod's praetorium, Everything is resolved. Let's see these 40 men who, before even the request, possibly the request from the council has already come in, that they want to see him tomorrow. And that would likely have given the commander evidence that what this young man has disclosed to him was absolutely true when the council comes forward with this request. But we have already, he's already prepared. He is already going to take action. And that action is going to prevent them from even uh, uh, being caught in the act of trying. He's not going to allow them to even try. We're not going to go down there. We're not going to further deal with this at all in Jerusalem. We're sending him out of here to a place where there's even more Roman soldiers and centurions. And that's Caesarea. This is where Herod preferred to rule from. And so... This is Herod's Praetorium, and this is where uh, the largest governing body in the region uh, would have resided with the largest army, Caesarea by the sea. This is different than the Caesarea over the, by Galilee. There's, there's actually three Caesareas in the region of Judea and, and uh, Samaria and those areas. And so we're out there by the sea. Um, Paul is safely delivered. And I just want to share with you that that's how God works. He keeps his promises. And when you read David talking about not the fact that he never goes through the valley of the shadow of death, but rather that when he goes through it, though he goes through it, God is with him. And as you read through and think of Psalm 23 we recognize a dependence upon God. That one of the attributes of God's people is that we are dependent upon Him and that we will fear no evil. That we recognize His rod and His staff, they comfort me. Now, rod and staff are, are two instruments of a shepherd and uh, they're there to stave off predators and to rescue sheep. That's their purpose. The rod and staff were there so you can beat off a predator. And the, these 40 guys pretty much got the rod of God. They just got beaten off as predators of his servant. And then, of course, the shepherd's staff is intended to deliver sheep when they stumble and get into places of danger to rescue them. When they start to wander, to get a hook on them and pull them back in a little bit. When they're their own enemy. And so the psalmist, who, remember, grew up as a shepherd boy, describes the comfort of having this one so equipped watching over us that there is no fear of evil. And that's the idea that I don't even really focus on it. It is not drawing my attention 
it is, there is evil out there, and I don't want you to, to just be an ostrich, stick your head in the sand about it. There is certainly evil out there, but it is not disconcerting to us because we recognize that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. God is greater. And he has the rod, and he has the staff, and that comforts us so that we can go through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Does that mean we're... Yeah, I would prefer not to have to go through that valley, but the fact is, is that God has promised you will. But he's also promised that he'll be with us in the midst of that, well-equipped to handle that. Now, you might look over the life of Paul and say, well, sometimes he got beat up and, and uh, bad things happened to him um, at the hands of the world, but he's still here and he's still serving the Lord and the Lord is still protecting him in the midst of it, not from it, but in the midst of it. And most of our praying, if we listen carefully to ourselves pray, is that we might be guarded from it, not in it. Think about it a little bit. Most of our praying is, God, don't let anything bad happen to me. Guard me from evil. Guard me from it being perpetrated against me. Not really guard me in it. That is, to preserve me in the midst of it. Most of our praying, um, and that's why I really challenge myself, even in my own faith, if I would like to believe that I would stand fast no matter what. But the fact is, is that that's largely untested in my life and in most of your lives. Oh, it's been tested a little bit, but I'm still eating really well. I still have a very comfortable bed. Um, and, and as far as I know, no one is really hunting me. There might be a few people that don't like me much, but I don't know that any of them want me dead at this point. And so my faith is largely untested in this area, and so is yours. We take small steps and, and congratulate ourselves, but then we pray, Lord, and, and we insert instead of in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one, is deliver us from any bad things happening to us. When God has promised that if you follow him, these are the results. In this world, you will have trouble, but he has overcome the world. And we all want to see the power of his overcoming. We all want to see things like this happen. This is a smiley chapter, isn't it? Come on, you got to admit, this is kind of funny. These 40 guys, how long did they go before they ate and drank? You know, I mean, you got to think about it. How disappointed were they that next morning when they thought they were going to be able to take care of this and go have a banquet um, and realize that Paul is nowhere not in Jerusalem. Nobody knows where he is. We heard the horseman going out during the night. Um, he's gone. And the commander standing on the balcony of the citadel going, <laughs> what you going to do about it? I mean, it is kind of funny. And we all want to see God work like that. But I don't know that many of us want to be in a Roman citadel having just been beat upon by some of our fellow citizens um, and... Uh, being hunted down with 40 men wanting to slit our throats. I'm not sure that many of us want to be in that category to see the Lord deliver. Most of us aren't quite ready for the valley, for God to protect us in. And I'm not saying we're going to go out there and try to find a valley of our own making. That's not necessary. All that's necessary is to live out a radical Christian life. And eventually, it should come. And what should be deeply disconcerting to us is that maybe we're not living out the Christian life quite radically enough. And that's why there aren't enough enemies. We do recognize, hopefully, that there are enemies and they are very subtle in our society. And we've talked about this in our study of Revelation of Daniel 
um, that that is the way of Satan deteriorating God's people during this age of the little horn. To just wear us down a little bit at a time without great threats. And yet, that wearing down is the greatest threat to God's people of all time. And when we keep calling the church to radical confirmation, to conform itself to Christ, um, I don't know that many of us recognize what that looks like. We sing songs from the, well, <laughs> that one's from the 15, 16, 17, 1800s, and these people knew what righteousness involved, what it demanded of them. And we have come to the point that we believe that we can, in fact, be friends with the world and friends with Jesus Christ simultaneously. And we are so quick to believe that the world and agents in the world are our friends. All they have to do is say, believe in God. My children were excited to see a speech by an actor, Denzel Washington. He was one of their more favorite actors. And he gave a commencement address and and mentioned God in the commencement address. And everyone got up and got so excited. Here's a guy mentioning God in his commencement address. And, uh, oh, now I can be his fan, and I can be free to be his fan because he mentioned God in that commencement address and hard work, and, and he's a very articulate man, and, and uh, we, we want to applaud that and get excited and now count him on our side. Um, but with just a little bit of research and hearing other statements of this one person that we are ready to applaud as one of our own, we find out that before every acting thing, he goes into a meditative state and asks spirits to come into him to help him act. That his associations and things, that he has that uh, made statements, essentially that his God is not Jesus Christ, but someone else. But you see, we're so desirous that we can, to, to believe that we can participate in this activity of the world and if someone in that realm will just reference deity somehow that we can then be a part of it without our consciences being seared. But they're being seared with a hot iron. They're being eliminated. We, we, we want to be able to say, I can watch his movies now because he mentioned God in this speech. And we never look at the fact that that movie is just New Age mysticism being promoted in the midst of the movie. But we want to ease our conscience. And as soon as they use the word God, we're all for it. In 2001, a 9-11 that's coming up here, an anniversary, um, you know, we, we heard it all. God, 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 didn't we? The problem was, it didn't matter whether your God was Allah, Jehovah, or whoever you chose to make your God, we, were, we would allow it. And so we had ecumenical prayer services with all kinds of religions. So whether you're a Scientologist or a Mormon or Buddhist or Hindu or there they all were on the stage and and our president is calling us to call on God as you define him. Well, that is not Christendom. That is not the truth. And that's how molded to the world we have come and and we say we want to see the promises of God, we want to see the power of God in our lives, but 
we're unwilling to be the radical believers that these men were. I mean, think about how radical Paul was going into there, just blasting open the the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, this is this is unfathomable to most Jewish people. It went against everything they have been raised with all the way back to the law. And Paul is just exploding it with the power of God. And radical Christianity in the midst of perversity, in the midst of worldliness, and even in the midst of wishy-washy Christianity is always explosive. Always. It sets everybody else on edge when you walk in and make the declaration, no, it does matter how you dis- who you describe as God. It matters deeply. I'm pretty sure the Bible has a place in there that even demons believe in God. It's just not enough. So we want to tap the promises of God and his statement that he'll deliver us, but we need to recognize that we may be committed to righteousness um, as Paul was. And I want you to just very quickly go back to Psalm 23. I've referenced it, I've read it, um, but I want you to look at the demands of it. We all, I have referenced verse 4 regularly because you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, his preparation, uh, I love verse 5 too. Uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Um, we wouldn't think that's a good thing because we don't want any enemies. And God says, I'm going to feed you right in front of your enemies, right with them. You're going to be taken care of with your enemies at your table. Wow. I mean, that's about where Paul was at, wasn't he? But I want to look at the basis, the foundation. That takes us into the early verses. Is the Lord your shepherd? You're going to follow him anywhere. Because he's the shepherd. Totally dependent upon him. He's the smart one. You're just the sheep. You just... Go where he tells you to go and eat what he gives you to eat. That's pretty much what sheep do. He makes me lie down green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then verse 3, the second half. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is the foundation of the promises of God. Are we led in paths of righteousness for his name's sake? Not self-righteous, not righteous for my own uh, feel good about myself because I do these good things, but for his name's sake. So I am led in paths of true righteousness, not for my glory, but for his glory. This is the foundation of all the promises that we see here that we all look forward to. We all want God to deliver us. We all want God to care for us. Uh, we don't, we're not particularly fond of the valley of the shadow of death, and we're not particularly fond about our enemies being in our presence um, but uh, uh, we want God's power to be evident in our lives, um, but we ignore the fact that the first facet of his power is to lead us into righteousness. We all want the tail end of his power without the front end of the power. It is submission to God that he might be our shepherd and to lead us into righteousness. That I'm going to be like Christ. And that's going to require some level of radical faith that the world has never understood and can never understand to this day. This is the kind of faith Paul exemplified and then received the victory of God's presence and promise. We want the presence and promise of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt. 
but it is there to lead us first to righteousness and then not deliver us from enemies, but to deliver us in the midst of them, with them in our presence. We're still safe. Those Christian guys paraded out onto a shore by a bunch of Muslim terrorists having their throats slit because they wouldn't deny Christ and call Allah God, were safe in the presence of their enemies. They were safe. For God has declared that if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. And their confession kept them safe. Oh, they died. You and I might think that's a a more brutal death, but they died violently. But their confession kept them safe in the valley of the shadow. They had nothing to fear. And we need to recognize, Paul, remember, said, I'm ready to die. I don't fear this. And so he engages centurions, and he's going to engage ship captains, and and uh, kings and governors and with a level of confidence and uh, that sets everybody back. You're going to end up with guys saying, calling Paul crazy, and some people are going to say, you almost convinced me. Because he lived the presence and promises of God, of Jesus Christ. And God worked through him, whether by life or by death, for me to live is, but to die is gain. He was safe all along because his attorney was established, built upon the presence and the promise of God. Fear no evil. Do not be afraid. Be of good cheer. Not because there's not going to be any problems, but because those problems are manageable and almost negligible in comparison to the power of God to be at work in our lives. Well, very quickly, I want you to see its influence on one person. And that's the commander. He writes a letter and he gives us some insight into this man who was privy to all of this except for the one declaration we studied last week. He writes this letter in verse 26 of Acts 23, Claudius Lysias, now we know his name. To the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. True. Coming with the troops, I rescued him. True. Having learned that he was a Roman. Well, that's a little stretch. <laughs> Didn't learn that till a little later. When I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. You might say, well, that's pretty, that's just relaying the information of what happened. But we know certain things were not known to the commander that he says became known to them. Remember that Paul's statement to the mob on the citadel steps was in Hebrew. The commander didn't know Hebrew, this was the language of the temple. He didn't know that. He had no idea what was said. In fact, at that point, he still thought this guy was an Egyptian almost. So he just, he, he just got that revelation a little bit ago when Paul spoke to him in Greek. He then takes him down to Sanhedrin, and again, we find that uh, the commander didn't necessarily understand everything, but he saw that Paul was being pulled to pieces. He commanded soldiers to go down and take him by force. He was watching from the citadel. Because the citadel had a, it was built purposely so that the Romans could watch everything going on on the Temple Mount. 
That's its purpose. So they, so nothing could be hidden from them down there. And so he saw what they were doing to the guy, and he says, get down there and get him out of there. He wasn't privy to that conversation. So I asked the question to myself, how does he get this information? Verse 29, I found out he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Where does he get that information? I'm convinced he gets that information from his prisoner, Paul. What was going on down there? And when the world watches us engage in the valley of the shadow of death without fear, it invites that question. What are you all about? What is this all about? Why do those people want to kill you so bad? What's this all about? And Paul certainly was willing to share that with him. But he was watching, and here's this man who is willing to address a mob, who is willing to go down and be beat up at the council, who is, who is a Roman citizen and only of late really reveals that and begins to exercise some of his citizen rights. And this man is watching and had to have been engaging and we're going to find that again and again in all of his trials. These people are, are just captivated. And what is it that draws their interest? is isn't just the story of Paul, but his commitment to the righteousness and the following, the service of Christ, that he would endure the beatings, he would endure it all to save some. That speaks volume. I will take a radical Christian who's getting beat up and spit on and cursed out, who has a lot of enemies in this world, as a better agent of the gospel than the compromising, sympathizing, worldly-looking and sounding musical evangelist who says we're going to reach this generation through our music by looking and acting and talking just like young people do in the world. You tell me which one Paul would represent. He wasn't trying to be like the world. He was being a radical, righteous follower of Jesus Christ and it gets people's attention. Yes, that means there's going to be some that are going to hate you for that. And they'll curse you out and say, I don't want anything to do with you. But there are others that are going to note it and say, what is that all about? And that's the question we dearly want to have them ask us. What is it all about with you? So that I can tell them. It's about the presence and the promises of God, Jesus Christ, in my life. It's who I am, and it's what I'm about. And all the friction that's out there, and all that is the difference. This is why I don't want to be like my neighbor when my labor is a child of the devil. I don't want to look like him. I don't want to talk like him. I don't want his music. I don't want his entertainment. I don't want his dress. I don't want his diet. I want rather to show him something that he might want after. that I might win him to Christ. Claudius Lysias got to see Paul in the valley of the shadow of death. He got to see Paul at the table in the presence of his enemies. And he saw him unafraid. 
And he had to ask, what is it all about? And we see a glimpse that this was, in fact, a conversation he would have had with Paul to pen these words. And this ultimately is our secondary objective. Our primary objective is to please God by living righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our secondary goal is to win others to Christ by that very self-same testimony. That we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we don't avoid it. And we have no fear, for he is with us. His presence and his promises we will keep. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And thank you again for this precious evidence of your power upon your servants who will be faithful in, your, in that service and righteousness. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to examine ourselves and to consider how we can place ourselves more and more into this position that Paul's in, to be your servant, to walk in righteousness, to be explosive in our service to you in this world, to be in it but not of it, and to impact it for your name's sake. Lord, we thank you for those promises and that presence that you still offer to all who would follow after you. Lord, help us to have the discernment, to see the inroads of the world into Christendom, that we might be moved to radically transform ourselves more into the image of Christ. Again, not to our praise, but to your glory and to the furtherance of your kingdom. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.